In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you're ever inclined to do your daily offices, your morning and evening prayer, from some of the older prayer books in the Anglican tradition, the monastic diurnal, say, or the Anglican breviary, or the monastic breviary, you will encounter hymns, office hymns, they were called, attributed to various very ancient authors, many of them saints of the church. Ambrose, who died in 397, Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604, Prudentius, died in 413, Venantius Fortunatus, died in 600, Paulinus of Aquileia and Paul the Deacon, died in 799, Rabanus Maros, 856, and so on, and so on. They're extremely beautiful hymns. They weathered the test of time very well. One thing you note as you go through all of them is that without exception, there is one word they never use, the word me or the word I. Imagine getting through a whole worship song without singing about me or I. They managed to do it, and it does them credit. One of these songs, Splendor Paterne Gloriae, written by St. Ambrose of Milan, to be sung at Monday Lauds, is a companion hymn to his Eterne Rerum Conditor, which we do sing. It's directed to Christ as the light of the world, a beautiful morning hymn asking for help and guidance throughout the day. It concludes with these lines. Leti bibamus sobriam, ebrietatem spiritus. In English, with joy, let us drink, sober or temperate, intoxication of the spirit. I'll use Paul VI's exegesis. Let us drink the sober intoxication of the spirit with joy. Now, being among a community of good evangelicals in Wheaton, Illinois, no less, I don't imagine I know quite what is causing the greatest consternation right now. Whether we're talking about drinking at all, or whether the notion of sober intoxication is causing a kind of a logical struggle with some of you. Well, first of all, why would anyone on earth pursue such a thing as sober intoxication? Wouldn't one be better off with one or the other? I'll leave which one to you. Let me say that the turn of phrase, sober intoxication, is not just unique to this hymn. Something Ambrose had been turning over and over in his mind. In a sermon, he writes, and I quote, Every time you drink, you receive the remission of sins, and you become intoxicated with the Spirit. Drink what, you ask? Well, think about it. Remission of sins? If it's wine, tell it to the AA who understand very well that drinking, consuming alcohol like any kind of psychoactive substance is very much a model of what sin is and does to the body and the soul. There are two major psychoactive substances that we deal with fairly constantly. One is an upper, it's called caffeine, psychoactive drug classified as such. The other is alcohol, ethanol. A downer, if you like. Well, not totally. Wait, you protest. Does wine not make merry the heart? Yes, but it also does this by turning body and brain and mind, gastric system and central nervous system into a turmoil. Alcohol, ethanol, 
its proper name, C2H5OH, is poison, all right? It is poison, period. When it gets into the body, it gets there quickly, making its way through the cell walls without actually having been digested. It makes its way to the brain and begins by seducing it with a glow of euphoria. Well, it has done that. It goes about the business of knocking out our prefrontal cortex, degrading our decisions, inhibiting our inhibitions, skewing our memory, sabotaging our sense of balance, slowing down our heartbeat, and if it makes it this far, and it can, suppressing our respiratory systems, which causes us to die. It's an interesting phenomenon that we have this binge drinking going on with young people, especially, and what it represents essentially is the death wish and nothing less. Think about it. You drink, the euphoria starts instantly. Within half an hour, it begins to die off. You're ready to reach for another drink, but your liver is struggling to process that alcohol. It's going to take it over an hour to cleanse your body of the same amount. You take another drink after half an hour, another, another. You do the math and you see what happens. Well, that's how it works. The fact is, however, prior to refrigeration, if you wanted grape juice at any time within after about a week after the grape harvest, late August or early September, you had to let it preserve itself by fermentation. It wasn't fit for much else if it didn't get that far. And you do want grape juice, wine that is, if you are throwing a party, especially a wedding party at which the whole village is being fated for days on end to celebrate the coming together, not just of two people, but of two families. Like the potlatch, in biblical times, the groom's family, who footed the bill, by the way, were expected not just to keep up with the Joneses, but to outdo them. Every wedding feast had to efface memories of anything that had come before by its magnificence. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely and that wine is beginning to skew their discernment, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus saves the day. He saves face for the family of his newfound friend, Nathaniel, and he gives us a few other things to think about as well. First is the fact that he makes wine at all. Given what I've told you about it, which I think they knew, if not scientifically, by firsthand experience, wouldn't Jesus have been better off to say they're better off without this stuff? Let them stick to Adam's ale, good old H2O. <laughs> We're supposed to drink eight glasses of it a day, God help us, but we know it does us good. The second thing is, not only does he make the H2O into wine, he does it miraculously. He gets the H2O from the stone jars. Where did the carbon come from? It was created out of nothing, de novo, on the spot. Now that's a pretty major piece of creation by the God of redemption. He could have gone so much further than something as discreet and as quiet as that. But you have kept the good wine until now, the MC says. He does not say, what in heaven is this stuff? It tastes like nothing on earth. No, it tastes like wine because it is wine. 
But as the form of wine, if I may speak platonically, the ideal of which all other vintages are the species, the accidents, Jesus, Jesus honors creation by making wine, and he makes the best wine that anyone can make. And if people have been drinking wine from since the days of Noah to today, and getting intoxicated from it, filled with toxins, poisons, is this special vintage of detox, detox wine. I don't know if any of you have drunk detox wine. I don't even know if you would call it wine if you had. Don't get tempted. It's not going to give you any kind of experience whatsoever. And above all, you're not going to get wine's preservative and antiseptic and antibacterial qualities if the alcohol isn't there. Those same strengths are what allow wine to poison you, but they also allow wine to poison anything else which wants to move into it and corrupt it. It's like a modern antibiotic. It will take out the thing that's killing you, but it will kill you in the process by taking out everything good in your own autoimmune system. But you can't have the one without the other. You can't have the nutrients that wine can bring if you want to have grape juice in December. You have to have it as wine. That first flush of euphoria is deceptive, however. You get a rush, a flush of delight, and then comes the price, a hangover or worse. The beautiful gift box that dopamine delivers when we do give or get some good thing in the world, here is revealed to be empty. So after half an hour, we reach for another and another. Sin pays a wage, and the wage is death. But the sober intoxication of which St. Ambrose seems to be speaking, which the wine of the Spirit delivers, is altogether different. It stays that euphoria. It endures. It builds up. It does not break down. Our judgments are not messed up. We don't lose our discernment, let alone our balance. We seem to be able to function with all our powers of reason intact, and yet something even greater has been given to us than bare reason can ever deliver. The water, indeed, has been turned into wine. And that euphoria allows all of our perception of reality to be a perception of the glory of the God who made this reality. As Ambrose continues, it is in the sense that the apostle said, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit, Ephesians 5.18. He who becomes intoxicated with wine staggers, but he who becomes intoxicated with the Holy Spirit is rooted in Christ. How truly excellent is this intoxication, which produces the sobriety of the soul. Well, I could continue to talk about wine, but I'd like to broaden it a little bit, knowing that for many of us, consumption of wine is very restricted, and it's not the worst thing in the world that ever happened to us. But if we could close it like there, it would be too simple. Intoxication is not confined to ethanol or any number of substances. We can intoxicate ourselves by our own spirits by the passions that flow through our souls and the passions that we share with others, by our affects, by our emotions, not just by love, but by anger, by fear, by disgust, by the whole range of things that can take us over, make us passive as they do their work through us. 
it would be easy to say that Christ has no need for our passion. He gave us his. But it's not that simple. There is something about passion and intoxication, especially in love, that goes to the very heart of Christ's whole project. Is the love of Christ, in other words, to be so removed from our idea of love, like some denatured spirit, some ethereal species that floats so free above the earth but has nothing to do with it? Rather, like the wine he makes, Christ's love is rooted in our human passions. Christ's love grows from our love. Eros is the root of every other love. And the wine he makes, rooted in our creaturely reality, creaturely reality and the rules and limitations which constrain us in every way. Our task is to allow that Holy Spirit to help us discern our passions, to purify them indeed, but not to pour them out, to cleanse them and to help us to modulate them and to make them into something that can truly express Christ's gentle love to others. To do that, we have to learn a kind of sobriety called emotional sobriety. And that means allowing us to know our passions, know our emotions, recognize them, and understand at the same time that we are not what we feel and we are not what we think. We are not our thoughts, we are not our feelings. They flow through us. We are the host, they are the guests and not the other way around. Thomas Merton said something about emotional sobriety. He said, we are to see our emotions coming as if down a stream. And we're on a bridge. We can't dam up that stream and block it because it will burst through at a time and place of its choosing and make havoc of our lives. Rather, to we are to recognize every feeling that flows through us, name it, claim it, pick it up, and return it on the other side to the God from whence it came. The Holy Spirit is more than ready to help us with that and give us something even more beside, which is his grace and his ability to take every inkling of our love and give it a power and a beauty and a sufficiency that we never could. Ambrose's star pupil, St. Augustine writes this, and then I'm done, and I quote, The Holy Spirit has come to abide in you. Do not make him withdraw. Do not exclude him from your heart in any way. He is a good guest. He found you empty, and he filled you. He found you hungry, and he satisfied you. He found you thirsty, and he has intoxicated you. May he truly intoxicate you. Amen. Please stand.